Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we have another new Patreon member to thank this week. Wow! Thank you, Daniel, for your generous support. Thank Daniel, Anna. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. We're always so thrilled and (laughs) grateful by this. Well, you made it weird. We're always so thrilled and grateful by the support we get for this thing that we love to do. And if you, what? Oh, if you'd like us to shout you out on the show, you can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and subscribe at any tier to support the podcast. Yay. Um, And you can also, you don't have to do that. You can just leave us reviews and stars on Apple podcasts, which is a huge help to us. And it doesn't cost you a diddly darn thing. Maybe. Two or three minutes of your time at most. How long does but, it take you to drop some stars? I mean, well, I do. Well, if, it, if it's a review. Oh, fine. I was thinking okay. a review, which a would be lovely. A thoughtful review. Mm-hmm. Speaking of thanks and support, today's episode is another sponsored topic. This time, it's courtesy of Elizabeth, who says, quote, A friend of mine, an American history PhD, just moved to Japan, and I would love for her and for me to be able to learn about Japan's past, be it prehistoric or more recent. I thought it would be interesting to hear about Paleolithic slash Neolithic slash Bronze Age Japan generally, ancient Japanese technologies, or how people got to Japan in the first place. But really, we will be thrilled with any topics you might come up with, end quote. All right. Well, you got it, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. This is going to be part one of a two-part series on some of the archaeology, culture, and history of Japan. There's we a will lot. do our very, very best, and we are going to start at the beginning. So the Big Bang. <laughs> You'll note the next line. Or at least really, really early. How and when did people get to Japan originally? Not your friend who got there very recently. Probably by plane, I'm assuming. Archaeologists think the Japanese islands were colonized by Paleolithic people arriving via at least two routes, one from the south and another from the north. DNA analysis seems to show that the first Homo sapiens to get to Japan came from the northeast part of the Asian mainland around 30,000 years ago, which is also when we see some of the earliest stone tools. These tools and other material culture are associated with what is called the Jomon period. If you've heard that name before, it might be linked to the very distinctive Jomon pottery style. Jomon ceramic vessels were decorated by winding a cord around the clay vessels while they were still wet, creating impl- impressions in the clay. 
There are also earlier Gemon vessels with decorations created by the potter pressing their fingernails into the wet clay. Like on purpose. Yes. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about me making clay things. It's like, yeah, well. <laughs> well, we've seen some of the clay things I make. <laughs> the later Gemon people, around 14,500 years ago, which, you know, it's like the midpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also made little clay figurines ranging from very simple and almost cartoonish to quite ornate called dogu. They're small, typically 10 to 30 centimeters high. And most of the figurines appear to be modeled as female, have big eyes, small waists and wide hips. They are considered by many to be representative of goddesses, but like, okay, sure. Um, See our yeah. lady statues episode. Yeah, so um, we've got for all of that. And the the thing about the big eyes and the the proportions and the the cartoonish faces, Eric von Daniken is a big fan of them. Dogu, he says yes, they're the big, aliens the big. with little goggles. Yeah, oh, space goggles. <laughs> yep, that's right. Good stuff. The goggles. I forgot about the goggles. Yep, yeah. because they're little astronauts. Mm-hmm. Little svelte astronauts. Boldly going. To Japan. To Japan. Hey, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first Harajuku girls. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> many have large abdomens associated with pregnancy. Which the, is the doku. a way, which is quite the way to say that, mm-hmm. um, suggesting that the Jomon considered the mother goddesses. Mm. Mm-hmm. According to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, these figurines, quote, suggest an association with fertility and shamanistic rites, end quote, which again, okay, sure. Why <laughs> yep. not? Um, the dogu tend to have large faces, small arms and hands, and compact bodies. Some appear to wear goggles or have heart-shaped faces. Most have marks on the face. The face. Most have marks on the face, chest, and shoulders that suggest tattooing and probable incision with something like bamboo. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll get back to that. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. The Jomon probably lived off a lot of marine resources, since after all, they were on islands. Island. Yep. Um, but we know from animal bones at Jomon sites that they also reared and used dogs to help them hunt. Mm-hmm. The Jomon, oh yeah, my little hunter. Um, the Jomon <sighs> people hunted animals like deer and wild boar most intensively in the winter months with bow and arrow when plant food and shellfish became scarce. Over 10,000 pit traps were found by archaeologists made by the earliest Jomon settlements in the Tama Hills region outside of Tokyo. They must have been careful to memorize the locations of these pit traps so that they could return year after year to the same spot. I read that and thought you were talking about the archaeologists, and I was like, because they fall in. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Or the people. (laughs) The people who didn't have GPS. Um, so fewer pit traps were made the rest of the Jomon period. So you have the earliest Jomon, which capital mm-hmm. E, capital J, earliest yeah. Jomon. Yeah. Um, so pit traps are usually laid out in a linear fashion. Um, they made fences and posts. And then with the help of their dogs, they drove their wild prey into the gaps between them. And 
Speaking of gaps, with the help of my dog, we will drive you, our wild prey, into Where's this, this going? gap for ads. <laughs> Excellent storytelling. Thank you. <laughs> It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back from our hunting trip. The Joman or some subgroup of them, are thought to be the ancestors of groups of hunter-gatherers referred to today as the Ainu, an an indigenous minority that still exists in Japan today. Although, to the modern Japanese government, they represent what author Jude Isabella calls a, quote, inconvenient culture, end quote. So here is uh, an excerpt from Isabella's article for sapiens.org. Quote, for much of the 20th century, Japanese government officials and academics tried to hide the Ainu, that inconvenient culture, at a time when the government was steadfastly creating a national myth of homogeneity. So officials tucked the Ainu into files marked Human Migration Mysteries, or Aberrant Hunter-Gatherers of the Modern Age, or Lost Caucasoid Race, or Enigma, or Dying Race, or even Extinct. But in 2006, under international pressure, the government finally recognized the Ainu as an in- Oh, bless you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the government finally recognized the Ainu as an indigenous population. And today, the Japanese appear to be all in, end quote. And we're going to come back to that article later. It's very long, but it's, it's very well written and it's a cool story. Uh, but now I'm going to uh, read from this ep- excerpt from an article put out by Hokkaido University. Quote, Associate Professor Katsunori Takase of the Faculty of Letters at Hokkaido University is an archaeologist who focuses on northern Japan and the Russian Far East, helping to fill knowledge gaps and expand what we know currently about prehistoric Japan. Material culture, studying physical finds, has great potential to uncover events and practices of the past. For example, although the origin of the Kuril Ainu is ultimately unknown, Dr. Takase hypothesizes that through close examination of the ceramic evidence, and then the article says, e.g. pottery, (laughs) the Ainu people likely expanded from the south to the north, starting from southern Kuril Islands, migrating up to the northern Kurils, and then finally to southern Kamchatka. 
diet can also be discerned through analyses of the faunal remains and archaeological sites. There is no evidence of agricultural production or cultivation of plants on either Kamchatka or the Kuril Islands, and the lack of arable land means the Kuril Ainu did not harvest grains or rice. They seem to have survived primarily off of seafood, including sea mammals, as well as birds. And incidentally, in the Ainu language, Ainu means person or people or human. So they're just the people. Those people. Yeah. Here's some more about the Ainu from an article in Discover Magazine. Now, mind you, this article is from 1998, but it still makes some very interesting points. Until 1946, Japanese schools taught a myth of history based on the earliest recorded Japanese chronicles, which were written in the 8th century. CE. They describe how the sun goddess Amaterasu, born from the left eye of the creator god um, Izanagi, sent her grandson Ninigi to earth on the Japanese island of Kyushu to wed an earthly deity. Ninigi's great-grandson, Jimu, aided by a dazzling sacred bird that rendered his enemies helpless, became the first emperor of Japan in 660 BCE. To fill the gap between then and the earliest historically documented Japanese monarchs, the Chronicles invented 13 other equally fictitious emperors. When, just before the end of World War II, Emperor Hirohito finally announced that he was not of divine descent, Japanese archaeologists and historians had to make their interpretations conform to this chronicle account. What makes it especially difficult to discuss Japanese archaeology dispassionately is that Japanese interpretations of the past affect present behavior, which is... Always true. Exceptional. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who among East Asian peoples brought culture to whom? Who has historical claims to whose land? These are not just academic questions. For instance, there is much archaeological evidence that people and material objects passed between Japan and Korea in the period from 300 to 700 CE. Japanese interpret this to mean that Japan conquered Korea and brought Korean slaves and artisans to Japan. However, Koreans believe instead that Korea conquered Japan and that the founders of the Japanese imperial family were indeed Korean. Yep. And now, a forest scene. (laughs) Well, I needed to transition us out of like politics, politics, politics. Japanese forest composition varies with latitude and altitude. Evergreen leafy forest in the south at low altitude, deciduous leafy forest in central Japan, and coniferous forest in the north and high up. Um, Because those of us who have only known Japan from like map projections, you may not fully realize that Japan covers a lot of earth. Yeah, and it's um, diverse in its ecosystems. Yeah. And people. As some of you (laughs) may have learned a few minutes ago. (laughs) Wow. Um, For prehistoric humans, the deciduous leafy forest was the most productive, providing abundant edible nuts such as walnuts, chestnuts, horse chestnuts, acorns, and beech nuts. Japanese waters are also outstandingly productive. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The lakes, rivers, and five by five. The lakes, rivers, and surrounding seas teem with salmon, trout, tuna, sardines, mackerel, herring, and cod. 
Today, Japan is the largest consumer of fish in the world. Japanese waters are also rich in clams, oysters, and other shellfish, crabs, shrimp, crawfish, and edible seaweeds. That high productivity was a key to Japan's prehistory. From southwest to northeast, the four main Japanese islands are Kyushu, Shikoku, Honshu, and Hokkaido. Until the late 19th century, Hokkaido and northern Honshu were inhabited mainly by the Ainu, who lived as hunter-gatherers with limited agriculture, while the people we know today as Japanese occupied the rest of the main islands. In appearance, of course, the Japanese... Says this article. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the Japanese are very similar to other East Asians. Letting that sit there. Just let that, that sit. All right. Thank you, article. Um, as for the Ainu, however, their distinctive appearance has prompted an awful lot of speculation about their origins. The article continues to say, yeah, I just, partly <laughs> because Ainu men have luxuriant beards and the most profuse body hair of any people. What? <laughs> Well, that's why, it says, that's why it says in all caps after that, I did not do any further research to confirm this. They do. Yeah, like, what there are you is, do? There like, is a Google, lot of physical difference like, between the two. Yeah. Like, like hair per inch for all groups of people. Please and thank you, Google. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you did say that the Ainu are like big into bears. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to get to that. And <laughs> yes, the, the Ainu people, if you look at old photographs of, you know, back when people were um, often considered anthropological specimens back then, like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Or earlier. Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are, or yeah, later. Um, yeah. There are pictures of, of Ainu men and women and the men definitely have some great beards. Yeah. Well, wow. which, which is, you know, typically unusual for, for Japanese or Chinese folks. It's, it's a minority that they have like giant beards. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. often thought to have migrated east through Eurasia to Japan. In their overall genetic makeup, though, the Ainu are related to other East Asians, including the Japanese and Koreans. The distinctive appearance and hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the Ainu and the undistinctive appearance and the intensive agricultural lifestyle of the Japanese are frequently taken to suggest the straightforward interpretation that the Ainu are descended from Japan's original hunter-gatherer inhabitants and that the Japanese are more recent invaders from the Asian mainland. So you can see the delicate line that archaeologists must have to tread within this socio-political context. Yeah, it's um, it is fraught, especially since the Ainu are currently really sort of battling to to keep their culture known and alive, or to like make it more known, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. but. Putting political context aside, there is a whole lot of archaeological evidence that can tell us some very interesting things about the Ainu. So this is from a fantastic article, the one that I quoted a little bit earlier in the show at sapiens.org. It's very long, but I'm going to read a little bit of it here, specifically talking about the Ainu and their fascination with and reverence for one of my favorite animals, the bear. The article discusses, among other things, archaeological work happening on uh, Rebun Island, which is about 80 square kilometers in size and sits in the Sea of Japan off the northwestern tip of Hokkaido. 
So quoting from this article. The Ainu, like their ancestors, shared their land with an important predator. The brown bears of Hokkaido, Ursus arctos yesuensis, are closely related to the grizzlies and kodiaks of the New World, though they're on the smallish side, with males reaching two meters in height and fattening to almost 200 kilograms. Yeah, totally puny. It's a dude in a bear suit. <laughs> it's a big dude in a bear suit. That's, it's not small if you're right in front of it and it could take your face off. I'd still want to hug it, though. In the north, the lives... I mean, like, you know... You could. Control. I could. Bring it in, bear. Come on, bud. Bring Arr. it in. Claw. And that's how I die. In the north, the lives of the Ainu and their ancestors were closely entwined with the bears, their fiercer cousins. Where bears fished, fished humans fished. Where bears picked monkey pear, humans picked monkey pear. <laughs> in the background. Where bears tramped, humans tramped. They were kindred spirits, and so strong was the connection between humans and bears that it lasted across time and cultures. The people honored bear spirits through ritual for thousands of years, deliberately placing skulls and bones of, of bears in pits for burial, and in historical times... For Burial? Burial. It was often a very grisly scene. Yes. Yes. And in historical times, written accounts and photographs of a bear ceremony showed that the Ainu maintained this deep kinship. Rabun Island's sites are crucial to authenticating this relationship. Excavating the island's well-preserved well shell middens can reveal much more than volcanic Hokkaido with its acidic soil that eats bone remains. No, no, no. What? No, no, it just means volcanic soil tends to be very acidic. And since bone is mostly calcium carbonate, uh, bones really don't okay. preserve well in acidic soils. <laughs> it was just a dramatic way of phrasing it. <laughs> and it appears that ancient islanders, bereft of any ursine population, must have imported their bears from the Hokkaido mainland. <laughs> Did they struggle to bring live bears to the island via canoe? A big seagoing canoe with oars and a sail, but still. Yeah, put them bears on that boat. Bears on a boat. At a site on Rabun Island, an archaeological team discovered bear skull burials dating between about 2300 and 800 years ago. Nearby, at another site called Hamanaka 2, a team uncovered buried bear skulls dating to 700 years ago. And in 2017, they found a little 1,000-year-old bear head carved from sea mammal bone. The newly discovered carving is doubly exciting. It's an unusual find, and it suggests an ancient symbolism undiminished by time. The bear has likely always been special, from millennium to millennium, even as the islanders' material culture changed and evolved long before the Japanese planted their flag there. The environment, economy, and traditions may all metamorphose over time, but some beliefs are so sacrosanct they are immortal, passing as genes do from one generation to the next, mixing and mutating, but never wavering. This bond with the bears has survived much. To the Ainu, the bear god is one of the mightier beings in the parallel spirit homeland, Kamwe Mosir. After death, bears journeyed to this spirit land, giving their meat and fur to the people. To honor this generosity, the people sent the bear spirit home in a special ceremony, Iomante, in which they hand-rear a bear cub into adulthood and then sacrificed it. The Hokkaido bear has now sort of evolved into a mascot that the whole island claims as its own, but to those with Ainu heritage, there is a much deeper link. And speaking of links, we're going to link here to some ads. 
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. The Ainu are also known for a long tradition of tattooing. Um, you can check out our episode on the history of tattoos if you haven't already. It's a good one. It's an early one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> until very recently, the last fully tattooed Ainu woman died in 1998. Ainu um, women retained a tradition of facial tattooing, lending support to the argument that the ancient Jomon employed the custom in the distant past. Yeah, so those little figurines that seemed to have designs um, incised or poked into the face that's thought to be representative of tattoos. Yeah. Um, For the Ainu, tattooing was exclusive to women, as was the profession of tattooist. Um, According to mythological accounts, tattoo was brought to earth by the ancestral mother of the Ainu, Okikurumi Tureshmachi, who was the younger sister of the creator god Okikurumi. At various times in history, Japanese authorities prohibited the use of tattoos by the Ainu and other ethnic peoples under their authority, like the indigenous people of Taiwan, um, in attempts to dislocate them from their traditional cultural practices and prepare them for the subsequent process of Japanization. Yep. Um, this should sound familiar to anyone who has studied any history ever yeah um as early as 1799 during the edo period the ezo shogunate issued a ban on tattoos quote regarding the rumored tattoos those already done cannot be helped but those still unborn are prohibited from being tattooed what disdain in 1871 the hokkaido development mission proclaimed quote those born after this day are strictly prohibited from being tattooed end quote because the quote the custom quote was too cruel end quote and according to one western observer the japanese attitude towards tattooing was necessarily disapproving since in their own cultural system quote tattooing was associated with crime and punishment whereas the practice itself was regarded as a form of body mutilation which in case of voluntary inflictment was completely averse to the prevalent notions of confucian filial conduct end mm-hmm. quote the modern Ainu term for tattooing is nuye, meaning to carve, and hence to tattoo, and to write, or more literally, sinue, um, to carve oneself. Um, the old term for tattoo was anshi piri, with anshi being obsidian 
and Perry being cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you might guess from hearing obsidian cut. <laughs> obsidian um, cut. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder what tattooing is like. Yeah. Traditional Ainu tattooing instruments called makiri were knife-like in form, and sometimes the sheaths and handles of these tools were intricately carved with zoomorphic and apotropaic motifs. And apotropaic meaning like um, warding Chasing off the evil, evil eye. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll um I found some cool historical images of these um early tattooing knives. So I will post them. Nice. They're cool. Um before the advent of steel tipped makiri, razor sharp obsidian points were used that were uh, that were wound with fiber, allowing all I didn't know if it was wound. We're talking about know, cutting no, no. and then you I use know. the word wound. I'm not laughing at you, it's just the wound. <laughs> I was buffering um, <laughs> that were wound with fiber, allowing only the tip of the point to protrude so as to control the depth of the incisions. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Um, as the cutting intensified, the blood was wiped away with a cloth saturated in hot ash wood or spindle wood antiseptic called nire. Or is mm-hmm. it nire? I don't think it's nar. <laughs> um, soot taken with the fingers from the bottom of a kettle was rubbed into the incisions, and the tattooist would then sing a portion of an epic poem that said, Even without it, she's so beautiful. The tattoo around her lips, how brilliant it is. It can only be wondered at. That's, well, that's nice. nice. Afterward, the tattooist recited a kind of spell or magic formula as more pigment was laid into the skin. The completed lip tattoos of women were significant in regards to Ainu perceptions of life experience. First, these tattoos were believed to repel evil spirits from entering the body through the mouth and causing sickness or misfortune. Secondly, the lip tattoos indicated that a woman had reached maturity and was ready for marriage. And finally, lip tattoos assured the woman life after death among her deceased ancestors. Um, apart from lip tattoos, however, Ainu women wore several other tattoo marks on their arms and hands, usually consisting of curvilinear and geometric designs. These motifs, which were begun as early as the fifth or sixth year of life, not school, um, yeah, right. were intended to protect young girls from evil spirits. One motif, the braid form pattern, consisting of two stripes braided side by side linked to a special motif, represents a kind of band used for tying the dead for burial. Um, other marks were placed on various parts of the body as charms against diseases um, like painful rheumatism, which we talked about this for a minute in our tattoo episode about Utsi, mm-hmm. the Iceman. Yeah. And that he had tattoos that um, w- some researchers think correlated with uh, was it arthritis or like, yeah. Well, there was one that was or like, rheumatoid pain. Yeah, like like rheumatism and also I think like injury. I think there were some yeah recovering from yeah. He had some on his back. He had some on a lot of his joints actually. Yeah. And and they were thought to be because uh, they did X-rays of Utsi's body, and it seemed like areas where there were injuries or evidence of arthritis corresponded with yeah. the places that he had tattoos, which is oh yeah, very they, cool. They did the X-ray, and they're like, "This guy's busted. <laughs> he broken." Um, and it wasn't just the body uh, of Ainu women that was decorated with meaningful designs. Ainu clothing was often intricately embroidered, ostensibly for some of the same reasons that tattoos were used. 
So the book, The Fabric of Indigeneity, I Knew Identity, Gender, and Settler Colonialism in Japan, quite the title. That is a title it's, that will get me to click on it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, the link is there, I think. Clicking. <laughs> Contains descriptions and analysis of textile crafts practiced by the indigenous people of Japan. I knew women insert their feelings toward their intended recipients into the cloth itself. Quote, stitch by stitch, as the embroidery is sewn, the heart of the seamstress is inserted into the cloth of the garment. When the wearer puts the garment on his or her body, the sentiments of the artisan are sent to be transmuted, and the wearer is protected by this passion, woven into the cloth itself through the protective motif embroidered on the coat, end quote. Through this gift, producer and recipient become linked through the sentiment concentrated in the garment with each stitch of the needle. Even though settler colonialism has had a devastating impact on Ainu cloth making, cloth artists across Hokkaido continue to imbue cloth with spiritual force by inserting a prayer during production. It's like uh, Phantom Thread. (laughs) One small aspect of Phantom Thread. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, from the website of the Textile Research Center at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Decorative needlework among the Hokkaido Ainu was worked in various stitches, including chain stitch and couching. I assume that that means something other than what I do on my couch. It was freehand in couche. style and... Couche. <laughs> Je couche. It was freehand in style and worked on a ground material made of elm bark or nettle. The Ainu of the Sakhalin Islands also decorated their garments, but these were originally made from fish skins rather than a woven material. What? They decorated, yeah, like kind of fish leather-ish kind of thing. Fish skins. (laughs) They decorated their fish garments by applying other fish skins, basically to fill up the holes left by the fins of the fish. They needed. (laughs) I hear you like fish skins. So I'll put fish skins on your fish skins. (laughs) Pit my fish. They needed. (laughs) (laughs) They needed in all some forty fish to make a garment. The pattern of decoration and its location are different from those associated with the woven garments of the Hokkaido Ainu. But the Sakhalin Ainu later also had clothes made of nettle. These were called tetarpe. They were decorated in the same manner as the garments of the Hokkaido Ainu. Cotton thread, available through trade with Japan, was increasingly used among the Ainu from the late 18th century CE onwards. More costly silk thread was also used. With the widespread introduction of cotton, the Ainu on Hokkaido and beyond started to make complete robes called chikarkarpe, or things we embroider, that were decorated with applique, uh, mostly with black or indigo fabrics and embroidery. Their symmetrical spiral motifs were made by stitching a thin line parallel to wider lines. The patterns are geometric but organic in nature with a strong sense of movement and emotion, with dynamic swirls, S-curves, lozenges, and ovals, all of which provided with barbs to symbolically prevent evil from entering the body of the wearer. On kaparamip, thin clothes, the often white applique patch had a design cut out to show the darker ground cloth, which is a reverse applique. Other cotton Ainu garments include the runpe, things which have a root, and sijiri, things we embroidered. Applique designs and embroidery stitches were passed down from mother to daughter, but they nearly became extinct in the late 1890s through the 1930s when most of Ainu culture was Japanized by the central government. 
Some traditional clothes were only seen where Ainu were displayed as tourist attractions. Womp womp. The tradition of Ainu clothing was almost lost until a revival of interest in Ainu culture in the 1980s and 90s. Women such as the Ainu poet Shizue Ukaji, as well as Eiko Ota, Kayoko Nishida, Senai Ueda, Nobuko Tsuda, and Yasuko Uetaki began studying old photographs, museum collections, and uh, they also talked with elderly Ainu women in order to recreate traditional designs and stitches. They then started to teach classes, publish books, and hold exhibitions and lectures about Ainu embroidery and garments in order to spread what they had learned. Shizue Ukaji has also developed her own art form, consisting, consisting? Goodness. consisting of embroidering Ainu folk tales on cloth, which she calls kofue, or old cloth pictures. And I've got links here that we'll put up on our show notes to um, some cool historical photos of Ainu tattoos and then also to Shizue Ukaji's um, art exhibits of some of her old cloth pictures. So they're really cool. Um, I'm looking at very... the fish skin clothing. Oh yeah. Do you, you want to put links up to that? Up very as well? cool. Yeah. Very, this, very If it's cool. anything like, I suspect it's probably a lot like um, some of the Aleut um, clothing of fish and seal skin that I've seen. And the stitch work is amazing. Like I can functionally sew. I've never really gotten into embroidery, but I can, you know, I can mend something or sew something together, but the, like yeah. the craftsmanship is just no, it's like really the, incredible. Well, there's that. And then also just the nature of fish skin. Like this guy wearing this looks like a dope shark. <laughs> it's just like, what up? Hey, it's me, right shark. The cooler version of left shark. Remember that oh, from yeah, like this guy six years knows ago? What's up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So that's where we're going to pause for now um, until part two, dear listeners. But we wanted to showcase a piece of Japanese culture, or at least a culture that is incredibly important to a portion of people in Japan um, that doesn't often get a lot of exposure. So we'll have a little, we'll have something a little bit different for you next time. Yes. And thank you again, Elizabeth, for sponsoring these episodes. I hope both you and your friend enjoy them. And listeners, if you'd like an episode of your own or to give as a gift, you can go to thedirtpod.com slash news and then click on the sponsor and episode link. Thank you for listening, everyone, not just Yay. Elizabeth and Elizabeth's friend. Um, we'll be back soon for with more dirt for your ears. And you can mm -hmm. find us on the podcast machine of your choosing. Yep. And we're on social media. Sometimes we're funny on there, but we're almost always interesting. On Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And that's all together at thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Uh, arigato. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.